The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. So over the next few weeks, we are going through the book of Ephesians, uh, seven weeks. Tonight is uh, the introduction to the book of Ephesians, uh, and we're privileged to have Dr. Michael Hakin with us. Next week, I will be speaking on Ephesians 1, and then we have a number of contributors. If you had uh, saw the postcard, uh, including Dan McDonald of Grace Toronto, we've got John Mahaffey, Glendon Thompson, Paul Martin, Victor Shepherd. So it is going to be a, a really great summer. We encourage you to bring your friends, your neighbors, uh, your uncles and aunts, your kids, not your pets, but bring as many as you can and uh, bring others to enjoy the uh, summer uh, with us. Michael Hakin is the Professor of Church History and Biblical Spirituality at uh, Southern in Kentucky, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, more important than that to me is he's a good friend of mine and uh, a fine Christian man and a wonderful Bible teacher. So without further ado, why don't we uh, invite Michael to come and teach us this evening. Well, it's a privilege to be able to begin uh, this uh, series around uh, this portion of the Word of God. The uh, fellowship that we're having uh, this evening is ultimately rooted, obviously, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is around uh, His Word. Let me read, and uh, if you have a Bible with you, follow as I read the first three chapters of Ephesians, and then I'm going to jump over to the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, and read Paul's closing remarks. I do so because of some of the emphases I want to make in this introductory uh, talk on Ephesians. I'm reading from the English uh, Standard Version then, beginning at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles 
are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend of all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work of in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And then if you would turn over to chapter 6 and verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the beat of the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be of all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. F.F. Bruce, who was a British Bible scholar of an earlier generation, his ministry dominated Britain in evangelical circles in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In one of his commentaries on the book of Ephesians, described this letter this way, with these words, it is the quintessence of Paulinism, the, the essential kind of summing up of Paul's theology. An earlier commentator, a Baptist, John Gill, 18th century, who wrote a critical commentary on all of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, said a similar thing when he said that the book of Ephesians deals with, quote, the most sublime doctrines, end of quote, of the Christian faith. And I suspect over the next number of weeks, uh, if you come faithfully, and I would encourage you to avail yourself of this uh, fellowship uh, week by week, that you will find your mind stretched as we think together about some of the riches, theological riches, of this book. What I want to do tonight, though, is to set the background and to really introduce some of the major themes, but that also is challenging in one respect, and it is this, that in this letter there are very, very few historical details that enable us to understand or to set the context of the letter. In fact, it's very unusual of all of Paul's letters in this regard. 
Usually as you go through one of Paul's letters, there is sufficient historical detail, uh, sufficient mention of events and people to be able to understand something of the reason for the letter, to be able to ground it at a certain point in the apostle's career. And therefore, it helps you, once you understand the context, to interpret the letter. What, what is Paul emphasizing, for example, in 1 Corinthians? And it's helpful to know something of the challenges he's facing in Corinth. And you understand then why he makes the emphases he does. This letter doesn't have those sorts of emphases in it. And in that sense, it is challenging. It's strange in another sense because the people to whom Paul writes this letter, the Ephesians, are a congregation that Paul knew very well. He ministered in the city from 52 to 54 AD. Three years, you can read about it in the book of Acts. Three years of ministry in the city. He at one point rented a hall, uh, a philosopher named Tyrannus. He rented this hall on a weekly basis so he would have a venue for preaching the gospel to the point that Luke tells us that his ministry was such that all in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And it, he obviously, uh, Luke is emphasizing that from that locale, the gospel went out, not only throughout the city of Ephesus, around 250,000 people, one of the great metropolises of the Roman world, but also into the surrounding countryside, the villages and towns surrounding what we might describe as part of the greater Ephesus. The Romans didn't use that word, but you're very used to that. The GTA, the greater Toronto area, well, the greater Ephesus area, the GEA, uh, as I say, the Romans nor the Greeks use that phraseology. But the gospel went out. A church was planted in Ephesus. We know significant details about that church from the book of Acts. From other portions of God's word that are written to Ephesus, 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, Revelation has one of the letters. The letter of, that is Revelation goes to the church at Ephesus. And I think by good and uh, common uh, tradition, uh, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John are rooted in this context. So we know a fair amount about this church outside of the book of Ephesians. And um, Paul mentored, trained elders in the church. There is a very touching scene in Acts chapter 20, about six years after Paul had first gone to Ephesus, after he had first preached the gospel there, men had been won to Christ, become elders, and he had built such relationships with these men that he is uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to meet with these brothers. They come, they travel an entire day walking, most of them probably, from, Mileta, from Ephesus down to Miletus, where they spend time. And we, we read of a tremendous talk that Paul gives them about his ministry then and his future ministry. And then he mentions how he doesn't expect ever to see any of them again in the flesh and they break down and begin to weep. And uh, it's odd in that sense that in this letter there are none of those personal touches that you would expect for a man who spent three years, at least solid three years, in a church, in a, a context, established a church, he has close relations with individuals, but where are these personal details? And uh, as such, it's not easy then to kind of understand what is the context in which Paul wrote the letter and what is he trying to emphasize in the letter? Why does he write what he's writing? 
There are two, and I'm going to build, these are very important, there are two historical details that are very, very important to kind of understanding the context of the letter. The first one is Paul is writing from a context of imprisonment. If we had the time, we could go uh, back and see how many times the Paul was imprisoned. He mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was in prison a number of times, both Roman and Jewish imprisonment. And we'll see in a minute what the imprisonment is that he is probably reflecting in this letter. The other little historical detail is the one that I read at the end, the mention of Tychicus. This brother in verses 21-22 is the only other person mentioned in the letter by name. Besides, obviously, our Lord Jesus Christ, but only other uh, Christian brother uh, that Paul mentions, and he mentions that this man is going to be coming to Ephesus, and presumably Paul is recommending him as the bearer of the letter. And those are the only two very, very clear, distinct historical details that enable us to place the letter in Paul's life and ministry. And so what I'd like to do then is explore those those details a little to try to understand what is the context in which Paul wrote the letter, and then from that move on to what are the big themes, at least some of the big themes in the letter, and the sort of things that you will hear more of in the weeks uh, to come. First of all, Paul writes the letter, he's a prisoner. And uh, I don't probably don't need to tell you that prisons in the Roman world were not like prisons in our world. The Romans had different view of prisons than we do. For us, prisons are places of punishment. The Roman world, prisons were places you awaited trial. And they were not primarily places of punishment. And uh, Paul describes himself as a prisoner, first of all, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. It's very interesting the way he describes himself. Almost definitely he's a prisoner of the Roman state. But he doesn't acknowledge that ultimately that the, the final arbiter of his destiny is the Roman Empire. That man who sat in Rome, whose name was Nero, who at this point in the history of the Roman Empire was beginning to show the wacky side of his personality. That's probably putting it mildly. And was beginning to take the empire and the running of the empire into his own hands. And there would be a decade of terror that would be exercised, especially in the city of Rome. Paul doesn't recognize ultimately that it is Nero or the Roman Imperium that has final authority over his destiny. He is ultimately a prisoner of Christ. It's Christ who's allowed these circumstances. In fact, it's Christ who has so planned these circumstances that he can describe himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And why is he there? He's there for the Gentiles. His imprisonment has come as we will see in a minute, because he went up to Jerusalem and was seeking to show in a visible, tangible form the unity of Jew and Gentile. It led to his nearly being beaten to death in the temple, his imprisonment. It was for the sake of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. The mystery he describes in the verses that immediately follow there. The mystery that God is interested 
in saving non-Jews. A big shocker to Jews of his day. The Jews of his day rightly knew that there was one true God, but he was their God. It wasn't anybody else's God. He was theirs and theirs alone. And as one rabbi once uh, uh, raised and answered the question, in such a situation, why did God ever make Gentiles? And uh, we don't know how extensive this man's uh, attitude was, but certainly he was, he was certainly blunter than others. Well, he made Gentiles so he would have somebody to fuel the fires of hell. And Paul knew quite differently. He was a prisoner for the sake of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He mentions this again in verse 13. So I ask you, implicitly here, not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Paul is quite aware that possibly some of the Ephesians would be deflated, discouraged. Here is the great apostle, the man who planted the church, one of those few individuals whom God called in that period of time to give new revelation to the people of God. And he's in prison. And uh, I think, as we will see, that this is one of the most central themes of this letter. And uh, Paul knows, on the other hand, that to be an apostle is to be committed to suffering. That's what he was told on the, when he was called in Acts chapter 9. Ananias, go and tell Paul about what his uh, experience with the road to Damascus means and also what he shall suffer for my sake. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, remarkable words. Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. To be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ was to be bound over to suffering and to go the way of the cross. And so for Paul, suffering was not discouragement. He mentions it again in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. As we'll see what the calling is in that little section of Ephesians, it is to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. It was horrifying to Paul who was in prison because of his commitment to preaching the gospel to Gentiles, because of his deep conviction that when the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, he died for Jew and Gentile, that the cross is the place where that deepest of racial barriers and ethnic barriers in the Roman world was broken down to find barriers re-erected in the church, to find schism in the church. Paul's whole imprisonment and suffering was, in his mind, a declaration of the unity of the body of Christ. And so it's not surprising that as he thinks about his suffering, he again ties it in to unity here at the beginning 
of chapter 4. And then right at the end of the gospel, or at the end of the letter to the Ephesians, in verse uh, 19, when he's asking the Ephesians to equip themselves of all of the, the armor of God, he ends by saying, you need to pray. Pray at all times. Pray in the Spirit. And you need to pray for me. I'm an ambassador in chains, verse 20. That's a very powerful image. Here he is, the ambassador of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Him who he has already said in the letter is now raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, who has been given authority over all of the names that are named with power in this world and in the world to come, over all the demonic hosts. This Lord is Lord over all, and he has sent Paul as his ambassador. And what's Paul? He's an ambassador in chains. But Paul says, pray for me. It's interesting in the context, he doesn't say, pray for my release. Pray that I might have the boldness in this context to speak the gospel. It doesn't mean he can't pray for release. In Philemon 22, which I think is written at the same time, he does say and intimate that the recipients of that letter have been praying for his release. And so this is the first historical detail. Paul's in prison. The impact on the Ephesians, I think, is found in verse 13, verse chapter 3. I ask you not to lose heart. The second uh, little detail is the one right at the end with Tychicus. Now, I could spend a lot of time, this is one of my favorite themes, personally, on the brotherhood, the fraternity or sorority of those who are in Christ. And it's a great, great biblical theme. And I think in our churches we need to recapture this to some degree. Definitely here in the West, where we have been deeply impressed with the individualism of our culture. And Tychicus was one of those men, he first appears in Acts 20, verse 4, about five years before this letter was written, maybe four years, where he is involved in taking up to Jerusalem with Paul a large quantity of money that Paul has been collecting for ten years called the collection. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, Romans 15. It's one of the great themes of his life. It is rarely talked about. There were poor brethren in Jerusalem who had been impoverished. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, as he's leaving Jerusalem on the, the, one, the second time, he meets the apostles. They tell him, remember the poor. They do not mean remember those who are poor wherever you find them. No, no, remember the poor who are your fellow believers. Paul took that to heart, and over 10 years, every church he planted, he drove this message home. You need to remember the poor who are brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. In fact, he says he would emphasize in 2 Corinthians and in uh, Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16, why don't we build a collection of money? And it accumulated to a vast amount until finally he goes up to Jerusalem in 58 AD. And a number of brothers went with him, and one of them was Tychicus. And in Acts 20, verse 4, we're told that Tychicus was from Asia. And Ephesus is in Asia, and he's probably an Ephesian. And Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and he's nearly beaten to death. 
by Jews who come from Asia. They see Paul. They recognize him. There's the man who's been stirring up so many problems in our home province. And they try to beat him to death in the court of the Gentiles. And he's rescued by the Romans. He spends a period of time under house arrest, or rather in arrest in the Herodian prison in Jerusalem, and then two years incarcerated in Caesarea, and two more years in Rome. You can read all about it in the book of Acts. And uh, Tychicus had gone up to Jerusalem with Paul, and he stayed with him. He stayed with him through thick and thin. He stayed with this man to whom he had bound himself. He was part of that kind of apostolic circle, that apostolic band. He recognized that God had called Paul to do an apostolic ministry, and he was quite willing to give up whatever plans he might have had for his life to see this fulfilled. And he occurs in a number of Paul's letters. In fact, if we had the time to trace him, we could trace him through into uh, first, uh, Second Timothy and Titus. All the way, another ten years after this letter of ministry of Paul, he stays with his brother to the end. But in this context, it's interesting. Paul says, I'm sending this man. He is, notice he describes it, a beloved brother. And don't pass, we we don't have time to dwell on this, but don't pass too lightly over that little phrase, beloved. In fact, one of the great themes of Ephesians, and I don't have time to touch on this, I'm not sure I'm going to get through all I want to do tonight, is love. The the, the epistle is jam-packed with love. I don't have the stats in terms of how many times the word love occurs to the total number of words in the epistle, but it far outweighs most of the rest of the New Testament. This man is a beloved brother. He is a faithful minister. Paul has learned to trust him. Now, when you read through this section, if you know your scriptures, you might know it it sounds like another passage. And you'd be right. Go over to Colossians. and um, Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 7 to 9. Colossians 4, verses 7 to 9. Tychicus. Oh, same man. Will tell you of all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they'll tell you of everything that's taken place here. Now, there's sufficient amount there that is identical to the Ephesians passage to lead you to believe this sounds like these events were going on at the same time. That when Paul mailed the letter to the Ephesians, mailed is our word, there's no post office in the Roman world. Of course, maybe, (laughs) no offense, maybe they were better off. (laughs) No post office in the Roman world. Uh, Apart from the Roman emperor who had his own royal mail, If you wanted a letter, you had to send it by a friend or a business acquaintance, etc. And um, so, but it sounds like the same event, right? Sounds pretty similar. Tychicus is taking a letter, and he's taking, he's going to fill in details about what's going on in Paul's life. Paul's a prisoner in Colossians. 
Tychicus, Paul mentions the same thing about him. He's a faithful brother, uh, rather a beloved brother, a faithful minister. He's a man who can encourage your hearts. That's a very important quality in the Christian ministry. Not all the servants of the Lord are encouraging individuals. Some of them are gloom and doom. You know, you ask, ask them how things are going, and it's all, it's all pessimistic gloom and doom, no encouragement. But here's a man who knows how to encourage the brethren. And uh, then when you find out that Colossae is only 150 miles due west of Ephesus, it really sounds like this is going on at the same time. And if we had the time, we could read through Colossians, and there's half a dozen sections that look like they come from Ephesians and vice versa. My point is this, that these letters, Ephesians and Colossians, and because of the mention of Onesimus there in verse 9, Philemon were all written at the same time and sent on the same occasion. Now that's very helpful. And... Um, <clears throat> It means it roots Paul's imprisonment in Rome between the years 60 to 62 is when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. He has been in prison now the best part of at least two to four years waiting for his trial. He's not there being punished. He's there because the trial hasn't come to, to, to uh, fruition yet. They're still waiting for the Jewish accusers who accused him and tried to beat him to death in Jerusalem to turn up to make the accusation in a Roman court of law. And Paul could well imagine the churches. What is happening to Paul? Now, maybe they were better off, they don't have our post office, but they weren't better off in this sense. They didn't have the internet, telephones, wireless, any of the sort of stuff that immediately you can tell Brethren, what's happening to you? None of that. And so what is happening to Paul? Where is he? And you can see discouragement setting in. And uh, that's why the first half of Ephesians, which I read, half of the first half of Ephesians is prayer. I, I, I learned Ephesians probably the way some of you have learned Ephesians, which is first half, chapters 1 to 3, doctrine, second half, application. That's a classical way of dividing the letter. It was striking, and I, it only struck me this week, to be honest, as I went back and preparing for today, I thought, the first half of Ephesians, half of it's prayer. It's not so much doctrine. Paul's not laying out doctrine so much as he is praying. He begins with one of the great benedictions of the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us all these blessings in Christ. He begins with an outburst of praise. He begins almost with the idea his brothers and sisters in Ephesus are discouraged. He needs to lift them up. You need to think of who we are in Christ Jesus. What God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has predestined these events from eternity past. He gave His Son and through His Son's shed blood, He bought sinners. We're now joined to Christ and we have been joined by the blessed Holy Spirit who has come and sealed us as God's possession. 
He begins with his great benediction, which there is no way you can read it and pay attention to what you're reading and not be deeply encouraged if you're a Christian. This is who we are. This is what reality really is. Paul may be a prisoner of the Roman state. Many of the people he's writing to may be in dire physical circumstances or social circumstances, but the reality is this, that if they are in Christ... They have riches untold. And then he prays on two distinct occasions. Right at the end of that benediction, he talks about the fact that he is praying. Praying that God, verse 17, may give you the spirit afresh to open your eyes to know who you are in Christ Jesus. It's amazing how the people of God forget who they are. That you may, and then he prays at the end of that section, verses uh, uh, 14 and following, that God may so strengthen you that you may be able to grasp the immensity, the marvelous massiveness, and that is a word. When I was going to use it, I had to actually look it up. Is massiveness a word, or did I just invent it in my head? No, no, massiveness. That you may grasp something of the awesome massiveness of what it is to be loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Half of that first half is, is, is dealing with prayer and praise. And he does that because of the discouragement that he senses the Ephesians might be going through. The other central section of that first, or the other central theme in that first half is the church. And the unity of the church. Notice Christ, who Christ is. Christ, verse chapter 1, 22, Christ is head over all things to the church. We are his body. The church is a place where God is building a dwelling place. Chapter 2, 22. In him that is in Christ. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the place where God is going to show, chapter 3, verse 10, His wisdom. The church is the place, verse 21, where God is going to display His glory. And Paul is greatly concerned that the church not be divided. And especially on this most critical of theological issues, it was a major one in the early church period, that is of the relationship of Jew and Gentile. And this theme is found in many of Paul's letters, that the, the Ephesians remembered afresh that even though they were Gentiles, and God had made no covenant promise to them in the old covenant, and they were without God in the world, scorned and despised by the Jews, the people of God, yet God had purposes for them in Christ, and now they are part of the saints. They've been grafted in, to use the language of Romans 11, into Israel. And all of these promises that are in Christ Jesus are now theirs. And so there is a great theme of unity in this first half of the letter. But please note, it is also this, this great theme of praise and prayer which I think Paul is emphasizing because of the potential in his own mind of the discouragement of the Ephesians. Discouragement can take other forms as well. Paul well knew that sometimes when people get discouraged with the Christian life, they begin to compromise. 
And living as a Christian in the Roman world was not easy. There were pressures. Ephesus was a center for the cult of the Roman emperor. It was a center for idolatry, the idolatrous worship of the great uh, Greek goddess Artemis and all that went along with that cult. The challenges of tradespeople going to an annual, a monthly dinner. Now, many of the, the trades would have monthly gatherings where you would go as a tradesperson. It was important to go to these gatherings because you could network there. That's not the word the Romans used, but that's what they were doing. You turned up at these monthly events as a blacksmith or a goldsmith because you need to keep in with the people who are going to get you business. How did all those monthly events begin, these monthly dinners, with pagan, idolatrous worship? And I won't go into the details of sexual immorality, which are, as Paul says in this letter, are not properly to be talked about, that dominated the Roman world. It was not easy to be a Christian in that world. The danger of discouragement leading to compromise, and the last half of the letter the key word I think that runs through it is walk. Look at the way he begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You need to look at the way you walk, the way you live. You need to live striving to maintain the unity of the church. And um, <clears throat> again, we don't have time to develop this, but it, it amazes me literally amazes me, and partly I think it's because we have become calloused by the vociferousness, the proneness to separate among evangelicals on how calloused we are about disunity among the people of God. And it runs in the face of all that Paul's saying in this letter. I'm, please note, I'm not talking about uniting with those who think they're Christians but deny it by the doctrine they teach. I'm talking about those who are in Christ. The great theme that he builds from chapter 2 into chapter 4, the great theme of unity. The word unity appears only twice in the New Testament. In chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 16. We are to maintain the unity of the spirits in the bond of peace, chapter 4, 3. What is God doing in our lives? Sorry, it's 4, 13. For, uh, God is bringing us to the unity of the faith. Part of Christian maturity is this theme of unity. And then obviously you've got the theme of, of the, the little adjective one that occurs all the way through chapter four. But it's got more to do with that than, than simply the unity of the church. Paul can go on in chapter 4, 17. I say this and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is the way you once walked. This is the way you walked, chapter 2, verse 1. You walked in a way that showed you were dead in sin. You lived under the control of the demonic powers in this world. That's the way you lived. Not anymore. You're in Christ. Don't walk this way anymore. They do so because they do not know better. Their minds are darkened. They are alienated from the life of God. They're callous. And they've given themselves up to sin. This is not the way you're to walk. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1, you're to walk in love. 
Love for the people of God. The love that the type of love that Jesus showed when he sacrificed himself for us. You're to walk in wisdom, chapter 5, verse 8. One time you were darkness, but now you're white light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And that theme then of walking dominates that second half of chapter 5. Or the second half of the, of the epistle. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. And the great theme of holiness. And if I were to trace it back to the historical context, as I said, I think Paul is concerned. These Ephesian brothers are discouraged. Discouragement easily leads to compromise. And so Paul's great emphasis in the first part, you need to think about who you are. And Paul tells him, I'm praying for this, that God would open your eyes, that God would give you a a, a sense of the love of Christ for you. And then laying out, very strongly laying out in a very general manner what it means to live as a Christian. The great ancient philosophers, men like Plato and Aristotle, spent a lot of their lives talking, a lot of their thought, talking about lives of virtue. Today I I know that we we often think of uh, philosophy as kind of a useless discipline. And philosophers just, you know, they're all just, it's all hot air. But that's not the way ancient philosophy was. Ancient philosophy was how to, how to live a life of virtue. And what is the amazing thing is that all of that discourse of those ancient philosophers was found in the church. It's in the church that we should see men and women living lives of virtue. Blessed is that society that has the church, such a church, in our midst. There is one other theme that I want to mention as, you, as we uh, pick up in this, uh, this kind of introductory remarks. And that's the theme of the Holy Spirit. It was mentioned earlier uh, in one of the hymns that Roger chose, and appropriately so. And um, it's brought home to me most strikingly, if Colossians was written around the same time, and I actually think if Paul wrote Ephesians first, he was writing Ephesians, and then word came to him of the problems in Colossae. And he wrote the letter to the Colossians. Because the Colossian letter, although it has portions that are identical to Ephesians, you could just line for line identical, the great theme of Colossians is the rebuttal of a heresy that is demoting the Lord Jesus Christ, that is engaged in ascetic practices, involved in seeking some sort of visions that the angels had. And Paul goes through that letter focusing on the exaltation and the exalted Christ. And in that sense, it's, it's somewhat different from Ephesians. The other thing that is very different, in Colossians, the Holy Spirit is mentioned explicitly only once. Colossians 1.8, where Paul talks about, about the, the love that the Spirit has given in believers' lives. In Ephesians, the Spirit is mentioned 14 times. Twelve times explicitly, two times with the adjective spiritual. In fact, 
in all of Paul's letters, there's only one other letter that is as dense in terms of spirit language as Ephesians, and that's Romans. And not all of Romans, but Romans 8. This letter is filled with the language of the Spirit. And that also is very important. Paul in Colossians, written on the same time, is dealing with a specific issue. He writes against that issue. When he comes back to think about the Christian life in general, the Spirit is not far from his thought. The reality is this, and I'm going to go through the 14 as a way of concluding. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. All of the blessings that God has given to us, His people, come through the medium of the Spirit. The only reason you know Christ is because the Spirit has come into your life. He's opened your eyes. He's given you an affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has enabled you to believe on the Lord Jesus. He has given you faith. Faith is the gift of God. Paul talks about that in chapter 2. All the blessings we have in Christ are from the Spirit. Particularly, Paul mentions that one blessing in verse 13, where he first mentions the first time, for the first time, the Spirit explicitly. We have been sealed by the Spirit. Every believer is sealed, not some. And here I differ. If you know the commentary, the great commentary on Ephesians by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is probably the preeminent, I think, expositor of Paul's writings in the 20th century, and I don't likely uh, disagree with him, but I don't think he's right when he argues that that the sealing is something reserved later for some. No, no, every believer is sealed in the Spirit. Every believer. Because the Spirit Himself is the seal. He's the one who attests uh, that we are the children of God. He is the one whose presence in my life is a guarantee that I will stay true to Christ. It is the Spirit who opens our eyes. Verse 17, Paul's praying that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I think that's the Holy Spirit there. The Spirit is a Christ-centered Spirit. He's come to glorify Jesus. He opens our eyes to understand the riches of Christ. And because we're a forgetful people, we need to have this again and again and again. The Spirit is the one who has given wisdom and revelation to the apostles. Chapter 3, verse 5. The church is built on apostolic doctrine. That apostolic doctrine was given by the Spirit. We have access into the presence of God by the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 18. Jew and Gentile, together as one. And uh, we again have to affirm this in our day. Because all men are prone to erect barriers of wealth and ethnicity and skin color and social status and education. But in Christ, all of those barriers are ultimately meaningless. We come together as one new body of people, one new man. And we come by the Spirit into the presence of Christ. And what is God doing in this present age? He is building a temple. 
God always needs to be worshipped in a temple. In the old covenant, it was the temple that David built, Solomon built. In the new covenant, the Spirit is building the temple. Chapter 2, verse 22. It is the Spirit, chapter 3, 16, who enables us to understand the love of Christ. Romans 5, 5 comes to mind here. God has poured out His love into our hearts by His Spirit. There is one Spirit, chapter 4, 4. This is only one body. There is only one body of Christ. Clearly, Paul in this letter is talking mostly about the universal church. And we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the word there is zealous to maintain that unity. And then we're to walk in such a way that we do not grieve the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 30. The great theme of holiness. If you look at the surrounding passage from chapter 4, verse 25, down to chapter 5, verse 4, most of the sins that Paul talks about are sins of the tongue. And it's very easy to look back on the Roman world and talk about their sexual depravity and the the bloodthirstiness of the gladiatorial arenas. But when Paul begins to think about the sins of that world, most of the ones are the ones we're very familiar with. Uh, That aspect of our heads, which we call tongues. And sins of the tongue, they grieve the Spirit. Instead, we're to be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 5, 8, and 19. Chapter 5, brother, verse 18. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a command given to believers. And to be honest, in the 20th century, and I hope we're beyond this a little, there's been a lot of rubbish written about what the fullness of the Spirit is. And a lot of controversy in the church about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Surely, Paul is indicating to be filled with the Spirit means worship. Verse 19. Being a person of gratitude. First thing, It should enter your head when you get up in the morning. Bless the Lord for giving me life. Being a person of thanks and praise. Grumpy Christians are an oxymoron. And mutual submission. And then Paul working this out. Where does the fullness of the Spirit work out? Well, it works out in family life, in the relationships of husbands and wives, and sons and children, rather, and parents. And the whole context, now this is the, the, the ancient world of slaves and masters, which has a faint application to employees and employers. And, um, <clears throat> and then finally, in chapter uh, 6, the one offensive weapon that we have in the spiritual warfare that we're called to engage in, in living lives of virtue and holiness, is the Word of God. What a tremendous privilege to have this word to help us in the warfare that God has called us to. And finally, we're to pray in the Spirit. And I will leave all the implications of what prayer in the Spirit might be to the one who will speak on that subject at the end of the series. And uh, the fact that Colossians only mentions the Spirit once But this fills Ephesians, tells me 
that when Paul comes back to thinking about a general tract for the Christian life, which is what Ephesians is, the Spirit fills his frame. We cannot live lives of faithfulness and honor to Christ and virtue in this world without the Spirit. Without Him, to paraphrase Jesus' words, we can do nothing. It's a great letter, and I trust that this gives you some idea of its contents, a little bit of its structure, and then in the weeks to come, you'll be able to fill this out as you come back week by week. We're going to, before we have a final hymn, we're going to take a brief time for questions. Uh, I've moved very fast there, and we'll maybe take uh, 10 minutes if there are that many questions. Uh, If not, we can close it off a bit earlier. But uh, are there any questions that you might have uh, before we conclude this evening with a hymn? The question was, uh, uh, are there passages in the letter of Ephesians where it looks like Paul may not have written the letter because it sounds like he doesn't know them? Uh, It's in Ephesians 3 where he says... um, uh, Ephesians 3, 1, 2, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Well, why would he say that if, 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 they, uh, if he'd been in the city? Well, at this point, um, he had left the city uh, in 54. This is about eight years later. And he's never been back uh, beyond a very brief visit for any length of time. And the likelihood is this letter was written to a number of churches within the context of Ephesus. Um, They didn't have the privilege of what we have, is buildings like this. When Paul used the Hall of Tyrannus, it was more of a preaching context, a lecture, rather than a worship context. And the worship took place in house churches. So Paul envisages the distinct possibility that there would be people who'd never met Paul. And it's quite evident in Ephesus... If you go back through Acts, the, the, the riot that took place in Acts 19, that uh, the, the, the whole the, the gospel was making a significant impact in that part of the world. Significant numbers converted. And so it's quite possible that there were significant numbers that Paul had never met. And so that, that makes sense in, in that context. The question was... Uh, Given the similarities between Ephesians and Colossians, why would the collectors of the New Testament stick Philippians in between? The letters of the New Testament, Paul's letters of the New Testament are determined by length. The, the order was determined very early on. All the collections of Paul's letters that we have, pretty well from 180 onwards, all have the same exact order. Except for one little thing that some... Some of the uh, churches that thought Hebrews was written by Paul will have uh, Romans, Hebrews, and then 1 Corinthians. But if you look at the letters, they're determined by size of letter, by the length of the letter. And somebody fixed that order early on. It would it'll be a completely different lecture, somewhat more hypothetical. I, I, I think I would argue Paul fixed the order. The question was, who, who wrote Hebrews? Uh, uh, I am not of the persuasion that Paul wrote Hebrews. So I don't believe we know who wrote Hebrews. But a, a lot of early Christians thought Paul wrote Hebrews. So, But it, it's got to do with length size. That's why Ephesians is, is clearly longer than uh, Philippians and uh, Colossians. So that's why it came after Galatians. Well, thank you for coming. And I do encourage you to come in the weeks to come 
as this great letter of Paul's theology is opened up for us. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.